Good morning. Uh, our first case is Community Success Initiative, uh, Justice Served MC Inc. et al. versus Moore et al. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court, Pete Patterson for the legislative defendants. I would like to reserve five minutes of my time for rebuttal. Something has gone awry when a signature achievement of the civil rights movement is invalidated on the basis of racial discrimination. The key flaw in plaintiff's case here is that they have challenged North Carolina's law providing for felon reenfranchisement when the harms of which they complain all flow from North Carolina's constitutional provision disenfranchising felons, which is not challenged in this case. Indeed, the Superior Court's opinion in this case, the majority opinion nearly 30 times used the precise phrase, Section 13-1's denial of the franchise. But Section 13-1 does not deny anyone of the franchise. It only extends the franchise to individuals who under the Constitution would not be able to vote otherwise. And once properly oriented, it is clear that each of plaintiff's claims fail in this case. I'll begin with plaintiff's claim of racial discrimination. All agree that the Arlington Heights factors apply, and going through those factors, it's clear that there is no racial discrimination here. First is evidence of a disparate impact, and plaintiffs have zero evidence of any relevant disparate impact in this case. In order to show disparate impact, the plaintiffs would need to show that Section 13-1 re-enfranchises white felons at a rate disproportionate to the rate of African-American felons. And plaintiffs haven't even attempted to do that either today or when Section 13-1, the most recent version, was enacted in 1973. So without any evidence of relevant racially discriminatory impact, plaintiffs' claims uh, should fail just on that basis. But um, the additional, yes. Excuse me, just on that basis. Yes. Um, as I understand it, that was also the argument made by defendants expert in this case. That is to say that the appropriate denominator in determining discriminatory impact should be um, the number of uh, persons convicted of a felony rather than the number of citizens or voters in the, the state as a whole. Is that right? Uh, yes, I'm not relying on the expert. This is a legal argument that in terms of if you're trying to determine whether there's racial discrimination in a re-enfranchisement provision, the relevant denominator is felons that are disenfranchised because those are the individuals that are affected by that law. So it, it's, it's not a matter of expert testimony, it's a legal matter in terms of what is the proper denominator. Well, the trial court found as a fact that Legislative defendants expert opined that there was no racial disparity, essentially what you're saying, that there was no racial disparity in the denial of the franchise to persons on community supervision because 100% of felons of every race in North Carolina are disenfranchised. Went on to say that the court found that the Dr. Callanan's report was entitled to no weight because it was unpersuasive in rebutting the testimony of plaintiff's experts, was flawed in some of its analysis, and while Dr. Callanan is an expert in the broad field of political science, his experience and expertise in the particular issues before this panel are lacking, Dr. Callahan's opinions are still entitled to no weight. Isn't that a factual finding that we have to, um, we, we, we are not fact finders, we can't go behind that and overturn that. That's correct, that is not a factual finding, what the proper denominator is, that is a legal determination. So you're and, saying and it, that this expert was, was providing testimony on a legal conclusion? Well this expert was saying that he was starting from a certain premise, and I'm not even starting from that same premise, is that uh, quote you mentioned says, he argued that the relevant rate was 100% for all felons, that's, what I'm, that's not what I'm saying. There is some rate at which felons are re-enfranchised uh, when they complete the full terms of their sentences, including uh, probation and parole. We don't know what that rate is, broken down by race, because plaintiffs have not attempted to show that. So, am and that I, would be the relevant uh, disparate impact. Well, am I clear then that the findings in the trial court's order um, 61 through I think 69, um, where they go through in great detail the disparate impact that this provision has on African-American voters in this state. You're not contesting any of that data. 
I'm not contesting the data, but I am contesting that the data suffers from a fundamental legal flaw, which findings of fact that suffer from legal flaws are not binding. And that is that the court was looking at the rate of felons on supervision who are disenfranchised. But that is the wrong question right. in and this case. So let's explore that a bit. Because if the claim, as, as I understand the plaintiff's claim here, is that this is a, a, racial, a provision that, has a, that is racially discriminatory against African Americans in the state, why would the disparate impact only be analyzed as, to, as regards people with felony convictions? Why isn't the trial court correct that the proper standard here is whether or not this provision discriminates against African Americans in the state as a whole? Because if the plaintiffs were challenging the constitutional provision that actually disenfranchises felons, then yes, that would be the data that you look at. But they're not challenging that provision. So you take that as the baseline. That's the given. So there's this baseline of felons. What this law does is re-enfranchises felons. So well, the only individuals to whom it is relevant is the individuals that are disenfranchised by the provision that is not being challenged here. And that must be taken as, as the baseline. OK, thank you. Let me ask you about that proposition. Okay. Um, you do agree that this statute, 13-1, doesn't re-enfranchise everyone. I agree. And so to the extent that some people are re-enfranchised and others are not, the, the folks who are not re-enfranchised can't vote. That's true, but it's not because of Section 13-1. If Section 13-1 did not exist, no felons would be able to vote. Right, but Section 13-1 could have said that everyone um, is re-enfranchised um, without making this distinction about having to um, complete their sentences. Right, yes, it could have. Right, but and, and, and I, I, I've been struggling to understand um, your argument about standing and how um, this, this statute um, can't, or, or that the plaintiffs here can't have standing. And, and what I'm wrestling with is, if this statute were to instead say, if, we, if it, instead of um, the first sentence of 13-1 saying that um, any person convicted of a crime whereby the rights of citizenship are forfeited, if instead it said any African-American person convicted of a crime and then went on to give how the African-American persons convicted of a crime could regain the rights of citizenship, would it, by your logic, this would not, could not be challenged and it would not be a provision that disenfranchised white voters. So is it, isn't a natural conclusion of your logic here that if this statute said any African-American person convicted of a crime, there would be no way to challenge it and it would not be unconstitutional? Well, two answers to this, Your Honor. First, there's standing and then there's a proper remedy to be ordered by the court. Our standing argument principally is that since there is a different statute, 163-275, that makes it a crime for felons to vote unless individuals are re-enfranchised in the manner according to law. Uh, and that statute is not challenged, and so you have no prosecutors that are here in this case, so they are not bound by the district court's injunction. So that is a redressability issue. That's our standing issue. But then there is also, and this gets more to uh, the question you asked, I believe, a question of the proper judicial remedy here. And the Constitution says felons lack the right to vote unless they are restored to the franchise in the manner prescribed by law. So for the statute that you mentioned, there would be standing to challenge that statute. And that sta a proper judicial remedy would be to enjoin that statute so that no felons could vote. What, what the court can't do where the court went wrong below is in prescribing the manner prescribed by law instead of enjoining what the legislator, legislature had done which would be a proper judicial remedy. We don't think it would obtain here because we don't think there's a constitutional violation. But yes, if there was a racially discriminatory reenfranchisement law, the proper remedy would be to enjoin that law. Well, I, 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 do, I will ask you about remedy and the power of this court to remedy a constitutional violation. But I'm still trying to wrap my head around your argument that 13-1 doesn't disenfranchise anyone, and so there's no um, proper challenge here. And, and it, it, it seems to me that, that what you're saying, you, you, you still haven't answered my question about how it is, because the distinction between the amendment statute that I'm suggesting that any African-American person convicted would, could be, um, their citizenship rights could be restored, 
and the statutes that's being challenged here is whether or not this, this was um, intentionally racially discriminatory, even though the words um, that, that race are not in the statute itself. So the only, it seems to me the only distinction between my hypothetical and what we have here is whether or not it's explicitly racially discriminatory. And the Har right. Arlington Heights factors are what we are applying to determine whether the statute is intentionally discriminatory. Right, and so I concede, apart from the issue with the lack of the prosecutors and the lack of the challenge to 163-275, there would be standing in this case. That's, that's the issue in this case, is that the injunction would leave prosecutors free to uh, challenge people, felons, for voting because they're not bound by the injunction of the district court. That's the, that's the principal standing issue. Um, and, and so that does not address the hypothetical that your honor is raising and which, yes, I agree there, apart from that issue, there is standing in this case, but the proper remedy, if plaintiffs were correct, would not be to say felons on a community supervision have the right to vote. It would be no, we enjoin section 13-1's provision, reenfranchising felons upon completion of the full terms of sentence. Maybe you do the severability analysis and leave the provision where felons who are pardoned can vote because that seems severable, but otherwise, you would enjoin operation of that provision, and the only felons that could vote were those that were pardoned. That would be the proper remedy for and the claim that they're seeking. I'm curious race. what your legal support is for the proposition that this court has no power to enjoin a portion of a statute that it finds to be intentionally racially discriminatory. The, 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 the court didn't say that the entire statute, um, th that is to say the, the, the General Assembly providing a mechanism for uh, citizenship rights to be restored, the court did not find that that entire statute was racially discriminatory. What they found was the provision requiring that, um, that persons um, complete their sentences and be completely released. And, and what is the, the legal support for the proposition that in enforcing a constitutional right to equal protection, this court has no power or authority to enjoin just that portion of the statute that's unconstitutional? Well, the court did not enjoin it. That's the problem. If you read the injunction, it doesn't, it says that the uh, state board shall not interfere with the rights of these felons to vote. It doesn't actually enjoin the statute. So the legal, the legal uh, typically in an equal protection case, the court can either level up or level down. And we see that in federal courts. It can either extend the benefit to the excluded class or rescind the benefit altogether. But the difference here is that the state constitution says that felons are disenfranchised unless they have their rights restored in the manner prescribed by law. And so this court does not have the authority to make law. So the only felons that can be reenfranchised are those who, can, pursuant to a law passed by the General Assembly, are reenfranchised. Now this court could enjoin that law. This court certainly has the authority to do that. But it, it but in that circumstance, then felons would simply lack the right to vote. There would be no manner prescribed by law by which they could retain their rights. Okay. And the then, lower court yes. implemented strict scrutiny as the review standard. Why is strict scrutiny not appropriate here to be applied where you have the kinds of issues, as Justice Soros has stated, concerning disproportional impact when strict scrutiny is typically that standard that would be applied? Okay, a few, few responses, Your Honor. First, under Arlington Heights, it's never strict scrutiny. If the factors show that there's racial discrimination, then the court asks, would the legislature had done it without racial discrimination? It's not strict scrutiny. Our submission is you don't even get to that second part because there was no racial discrimination. Now, there are also claims about a burden on the right to vote. But the reason strict scrutiny does not apply to that is because felons do not have a fundamental right to vote. The state constitution expressly says that they are disenfranchised unless and until they are reenfranchised in the manner prescribed by law. And as cases in, uh, in the federal courts, in the 6th, 9th, and 11th circuits that we've cited, have said that there is no fundamental right at issue here. This is a discretionary statutory benefit of felon reenfranchisement that is being extended, so it is reviewed for a rational basis. And here, uh, the uh, argument for applying rational basis is even stronger than in the federal context, because in the federal context, it's an implication 
from a provision in Section 2 of the 14th Amendment affecting state apportionment that says states are allowed to disenfranchise felons. Here it's much more direct because this state's constitution says felons lack the right to vote unless they are reenfranchised in the manner prescribed by law. But in looking at strict scrutiny being applied here and, and respecting Arlington Heights, doesn't nonetheless the fact still remain that in looking at the totality of the circumstances as the impact that this statute uh, has had in terms of re-enfranchisement, that strict scrutiny is employable here as the Superior Court did in terms of looking at the totality of the impact and what has occurred relative to the African-American community in terms of felons being re-enfranchised? Uh, no, for two reasons. First, again, strict scrutiny is never applicable under Arlington Heights, but then also there's no evidence, as I explained, of relevant disparate impact. And then on the other Arlington Heights factors, we look at the history of the challenge provision. And here, there is zero evidence of any racial discrimination in the history of the challenge statute before the 1970s. It was initially enacted in 1840, the predecessor, at a time when unfortunately African Americans did not have the right to vote, but that means that it couldn't have been motivated by racial discrimination. And then it was amended in 1897, 1899, 1905, 1933, being relaxed each time, and there's no evidence that any of those amendments had any racial discrimination associated with it. And then this court has already said the 1971 and 1973 provisions were motivated by a desire to substantially relax the uh, standards required for felons to be re-enfranchised. So Council, I, I wanted to quickly go back to yeah. the remedy. I, I had a follow-up question yeah. for you. So um, you mentioned the leveling up and leveling yes. down. So these are doctrines in, in federal constitutional yes. doctrine that have existed for a long time. As far as I can tell, in 200 plus years of North Carolina's constitutional doctrine, we haven't used that concept. We have something that seems more akin to the common law blue pencil concept of we examine if we declare a particular provision unconstitutional, uh, can the rest of the provision function without it? And if not, or the statute or whatever, then it's all uh, invalid, it's a nullity. So if the portion that's challenged in this case was struck out or blue penciled or describe it however you want, can the rest of the statute function in your view? Well, there is one portion that can function. That's, Which that's, is the pardon section. pardon section. It, can anything else function? No, no. So, um, and so, yes, that is additional reason why the remedy is incorrect, but our argument is that even if the level up, level down concept applied because of that manner prescribed by law language, uh, that uh, it still would be an improper remedy, what, what the plaintiffs are seeking. Um, then, Re returning to yes. the question of whether or not strict scrutiny is appropriate, um, are you asking us to overrule or reverse our decisions in Stevenson versus Bartlett and Blankenship versus Bartlett where this court said, and I'm quoting now from Stevenson, it is well settled in this state that the right to vote on equal terms is a fundamental right and then thus strict scrutiny is the applicable standard. And we said the same thing in Blankenship. No, we're not asking to overrule that. The question is to whom does the right to vote apply? And here, as the same thing in federal law, there's a fundamental right to vote. But there's a predicate question, who hold, who's the holder of that right? right. But, but you keep wanting to narrow the plaintiff's claim to only um, persons convicted of a felony, and they're saying this implicates the, the right to vote on equal terms for African Americans in the state as a whole. Well, in order for it to implicate that right, you have to look at are the individuals that are affected, do they have a fundamental right to vote? And the answer is no. Under this constitution of this state, the answer cannot be yes, because Article One or Article 6, Section 1, says individuals above a certain age and residing in this state, subject to the qualifications, shall have the right to vote in elections subject to the rest of this article. And then Article 2, Article 2 Clause 3, says felons lack the right to vote unless and until their rights are restored in the manner provided by law. So unless and until that happens, felons lack the fundamental right to vote. And a similar reasoning was uh, engaged in by Justice O'Connor, sitting by designation in the Ninth Circuit, in the Harvey case, and this was in the context of a free elections clause claim under the Arizona Constitution. And Justice O'Connor said that the felons in that case simply can't have a free elections claim because another provision of the state constitution says that felons can be disenfranchised. 
So it's the same reasoning here. But you would also agree that it's our burden, our responsibility, to, to read all of the provisions of the Constitution. Um, and, and in fact, in, in Stevenson v. Bartlett, we had to read a provision that allowed multi-member districts um, in, in, in concert with the provision, uh, our, uh, this court's interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause that ultimately the court in that case decided prohibited multi-member districts. So, so when there is tension, we have to read them consistently, correct? We have to well, look in, at the entire Constitution. In Stevenson, there was a provision of the uh, whole, whole county provision, a clause in the whole county provision that said how you calculate representation when there are multi-member districts. And what this court said is we're not going to interpret that provision to mandate multi-member districts, because if we did that, that would create tension with another section of the Constitution. Right. Um, but it didn't say multi-member districts are never appropriate. Here, this court would be creating tension if it said that felons have a fundamental right to vote, because there is a provision of the Constitution that says explicitly that they do not. Right. So this court would be reading the whole Constitution together is what we're advocating. Because if you read the felon disenfranchisement provision, you simply cannot read, for example, the property qualifications clause and the, the uh, free elections clause to be implicated by uh, felons that, who are not able to vote. So let me ask you, even if we were to agree, so now uh, on the claims that don't relate to race, yeah. where we are applying strict scrutiny and, and Again, I think we're just gonna have to agree to disagree about whether or not this involves only people convicted of, of um, felonies or voters across the state in general. But even if I, we accept that it is rational basis review, how can you, the, your clients satisfy that standard when the trial court made explicit findings? Then I'm looking now at finding of fact 104. Defendants failed to introduce any evidence supporting the view that section 13.1's denial of the franchise to people on felony supervision serves any valid state interest today. The findings go on to recount the testimony of the executive director of the state board of elections saying they're not asserting that the denial of the franchise to people on felony supervision serves any of these interests. Um, the court then finds that the um, state board did not introduce any facts or empirical evidence to support any assertion that section 13.1 denial of the franchise serves any legitimate governmental interest. And in looking at the history of this provision, the court also found as a fact that back in 1970, one and 72 when this was um, considered by the legislature there there was in fact an, an admission that, that 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 this did not there was no um governmental purpose advanced for the amendment that introduced this um part of the provision so in the face of those findings and, I, and in that regard i'm referring um to finding of fact 49 Representative Jim Ramsey, who chaired the House Committee, offering the subcommittee substitute, adding back the words probation and parole, openly acknowledged in 1971 that the provision governing restoration of voting rights was archaic and inequitable. So these are findings of fact that bind this court. How does your client even meet a rational basis review? Well, Your Honor, I'm very glad that you read paragraph 104, because that makes our case where the court said that there is no interest supporting Section 13-1's denial of the franchise. And Section 13-1, as I've said repeatedly, does not deny anyone the franchise. So the court is operating in that finding of fact, as well as in the things from the 1970s, under an incorrect legal standard. And so for that reason, those findings cannot stand. And in any event, under rational basis review, there's no need for evidence, there's no need for fact finding. It's whatever could be a rational Finding. And then finally, there is substantial evidence in this record for why, uh, for it being rational to make felon reenfranchisement immediate and automatic. And we have that in the testimony of Representative Michaud, who explained that this was the main point of the 1973 amendment, was to make this immediate and automatic upon full completion of sentence. So we have the best sort of evidence there is, the proponent of the very bill explaining what the purpose of that was. I, I don't know what could be better evidence. But even in talking about completion of a sentence, uh, there is the aspect of the disenfranchisement as well, 
wherein one who has not completed the financial obligations uh, is still disenfranchised. If the sentence itself is completed and the costs and the fees and the fines are otherwise administrative in nature, more than punitive or deterrent or rehabilitative, then why should that still operate, even on the rational basis, to keep one from being able to vote when nothing is left except the monetary obligations? Well, Your Honor, first, plaintiffs are not making an as-applied claim on behalf of a person like that. This is a facial claim. I'm not conceding that claim would succeed, but that's not the claim that's at issue here. This is a facial claim. And first, there is no wealth classification in this statute. The classification is whether a felon has completed his or her sentence or has not. But in virtue of the way it operates, therein lies the equal protection analysis as opposed to the rational basis analysis, even if the statute of re-enfranchisement may not be on its face racially based, the impact of it does it not have the equal protection inquiry therefore to be applicable. I think everyone in this case accepts that disparate impact alone does not require heightened scrutiny. You need evidence of intent. And there's no evidence of intent that is relevant and probative with respect to either race or with respect to wealth in this case. And even with respect to wealth, as federal courts have repeatedly held, again, the 6th, 9th, and 11th circuits all have faced claims saying that requiring felons to complete financial terms of sentence are a constitutional violation, and they all have rejected that claim. And they've said, look, this is not a case like uh, the Harper United States Supreme Court decision involving a poll tax where you're uh, introducing an irrelevant element into the case. This is a case in which this is extremely relevant. If felons are disenfranchised because they commit a felony, perhaps the most natural place to draw the line for when they're reenfranchised is when they've paid their debt to society in full, completed not only the carceral terms of sentence, if they have one, but also the financial terms, which are just as much a part of their sentence. I see I'm into my rebuttal time. I'm happy to answer additional questions, but uh, I was hoping to say Thank you, counsel. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, I'm Stanton Jones from Arnold and Porter, and I represent the plaintiffs. I will address our broader claims of intentional race-based discrimination for 15 minutes, and then Mr. Atkinson will address our claims regarding people on supervision due to fees and fines. Contrary to what you just heard, Article 6, Section 2 of the North Carolina Constitution does not give the legislature a special license to intentionally discriminate against African Americans. No provision of the Constitution does that. Article 6, Section 2 authorizes the legislature to prescribe by law the manner of rights restoration, but any such law enacted by the legislature must comply with the Equal Protection Clause. And any legislature... Can I ask you for a quick clarification of, of your position? So you said authorizes, but in, in, in your view, is the legislature under our state constitution required to enact any kind of reenfranchisement statute? Yeah, you're, so the text of the constitutional provision refers to the manner of rights restoration. I think signaling in the text that the design from the very beginning of the constitutional provision was that there would be rights rest restoration legislation at all times. And of course, for 146 years, uh, there always has been rights restoration legislation. Um, but but even, if, uh, even if you thought that the constitutional provision alone would disenfranchise, I guess, all people convicted of felonies permanently in the absence of any implementing legislation, that's simply not the case here. The, the legislature has enacted a rights restoration statute, and I think it's undisputed that that statute, as a law enacted by the General Assembly, must comply with the Equal Protection Clause and other If provisions. you're right about that, isn't the remedy under our constitutional doctrine that we would declare the act of the General Assembly unconstitutional, it's a nullity, and the legislature must reenact a constitutional version of the statute? Respectfully, no, Your Honor. The, the trial court properly enjoined only the uh, racially discriminatory aspect of the law here, which was the... Uh, the denial of the franchise to people who are living in the community. And I'd like to make three points about that, the remedy. First, in general, 
Courts, of course, including North Carolina courts, have broad discretion to fashion full relief to remedy constitutional violations, including unconstitutional racial discrimination. Second, and more specifically, courts in this state uh, can invalidate only the unconstitutional portion of a statute. They need not- Counsel, yes. counsel. So uh, it seems that you're talking about severability. Um, so if we were, even if we were to agree that the trial court was correct in finding 13-1 to be unconstitutional or uh, the, to the extent that it um, re-enfranchises people who have um, satisfied their post-trial supervision, um, which provision of 13-1 would we be relying on or did the trial court rely on to say uh, for, for its conclusion that uh, any felon who's completed a prison sentence should be allowed to vote? Yeah, so, so, right to vote. so I'll answer your question directly. One prefatory note, but we don't believe that in remedying unconstitutional racial discrimination that the courts of this state are strictly limited to, to striking through individual words in a statute. This is not a game of wordplay between the legislature and the judiciary. Courts of this state have what, what broad- What North Carolina constitutional case are you relying on for that position? So, so this court's decision in State v. Ferdell says that courts can invalidate only the unconstitutional portion or aspect of a statute. And there's extensive U.S. Supreme Court precedent in the equal protection context. And of course, this court has imported much equal protection law from the U.S. Supreme Court including Arlington Heights, which has been discussed here today. And in the U.S. Supreme Court, it, it is routine, and there are multiple unanimous decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court that uh, applied, uh, uh, afford remedial relief called leveling up, meaning that the court, as, as relief for unconstitutional discrimination, will expand the statute to cover an improperly excluded class, rather than enjoining the entire statute and denying a benefit to everyone. That's the the court's gender discrimination cases like Califano and Frontiero. Again, these are, um, this is a standard remedial. Yeah, but the, the U.S. Supreme Court, so um, Morales Sessions, for example, the Justice Ginsburg unanimous opinion leveled down. So that was the case. You had the unwed mothers and the unwed fathers. It was gender discrimination, citizenship of the child, how long the mother and the father um, had to be in the country. And they leveled down, and that sort of, and the, and the basis of Justice Ginsburg's opinion there was would they try to figure out what would the legislature have wanted. But it seems that our constitutional doctrine is pretty clear that in North Carolina, we don't try to get into the minds of legislators. We declare something unconstitutional and then tell that other branch of government, you need to try again. You enacted a law and it was unconstitutional. Enact one that is not unconstitutional. Isn't that what the law here in North Carolina says? No, no Your Honor, for, for at least three reasons, leveling up is the proper remedy here, and, and, the, and the remedy that would clearly comport with um, what the General Assembly has always done. So there's three reasons. First, eliminating rights restoration entirely, striking down Section 13-1 in toto, would wreak havoc on this state's, of elections, this state's elections. It would call into question the voting rights of hundreds of thousands of people who have felony convictions but have already had their rights restored under Section 13-1 if that provision were eliminated entirely. There, there's no evidence or even argument that that's even a feasible remedy that the State Board of Elections and the Department of Corrections could implement. So it's simply not workable. Second, there has always been rights restoration legislation in this state since 1877. The choice of the General Assembly itself has always been to have some rights restoration legislation. And if this court were to strike down 13-1 entirely, it would contradict that unbroken history of the General Assembly's practice and choice. And third, as the legislative defendants themselves stress in this case, the, the, general, the, the trend of legislative activity, uh, at least over the last 50 years, has been to liberalize rights restoration, to expand rights restoration. Those are changes that the General Assembly made. And if this course, court were to strike down Section 13-1 entirely, again, it would leave potentially hundreds of thousands of people with felony convictions permanently disenfranchised in a way that 
has never been the law in this state ever um, would go against the, the trend over the last 50 years in the General Assembly itself. Council, um, here's my basic concern with uh, the remedy, since we're talking about remedies already. Um, the, the Constitution in Article 6 says uh, felons shall not vote uh, unless their rights have been restored in the manner prescribed by law. Um, as we look at 13-1-1, the legislature has said that one basis for restoration is the unconditional discharge of an inmate or probation or parolee by the relevant agency. That, you know, I think we all agree that means that um, felons uh, don't uh, have the right to vote merely upon their release from prison or incarceration. Um, as I understand the Constitution, the provision, the default is no felon voting, uh, except in the manner prescribed by law. Where's the law that prescribes um, that felons can vote or may vote upon simply upon uh, being released from incarceration? So to two responses. The first one goes back to what you were asking before, I think, and I didn't quite get out my full answer. So if you wanted to just strike through specific words in Section 13-1 that, that um, are the unconstitutional portion, you could do that. You could strike through the words unconditionally and the phrase of a probationer or of a parolee, and consistent with the notion of just being limited to blue penciling, those modest changes to sec the text of 13-1 would have the effect of making clear in the remaining legislative uh, language that all persons- well, What I'm getting at is the trial court seems to have imposed a remedy that's beyond the authority of a court because the courts can't grant the restoration of voting rights to felons. The Constitution uh, expressly provides that those rights can only be restored in the manner prescribed by law, and the authority to adopt such a law rests with the General Assembly, not with any court. Yeah, Your Honor, I think this was part of the exchange with Justice Earls. By that reasoning, I think the, general, the constitutional provision would allow the General Assembly to enact a statute that just restores uh, uh, voting rights to white people because the argument would be the same. It would be, well, um, sure, black people still can't vote, but that's because of the Constitution, it's not because of the statute. I question that reasoning because it would seem to me that in that case, of course there could be an equal protection uh, challenge and the court could of course strike down the law if it violated equal protection. But then the question would be, what would the result of that judicial action be? Would it be that all felons would be allowed to vote or would it be that no felons would be allowed to vote until the General Assembly, until such time as the General Assembly enacted legislation uh, that was constitutional, that, that prescribed the manner by which rights would be restored? I think the proper remedy in that case, consistent with the U.S. Supreme Court's gender discrimination cases, applying equal protection standards that this court has already imported, um, would be to, to level up, would be to, uh, to afford voting rights to white people and black people, not to strike down the entire law and simply have no rights restoration in this state, contrary to what has actually been the case forever. Um, if I could address the, the defendant's argument about disparate impact and this argument that there's no disparate impact from this law. But before you get there, counsel, on the face of section 13.1, uh, if we were just to read the language of the statute, what can we glean uh, from those words that show racial animus or some sort of racial uh, intent to uh, discriminate racially? No more than you could from a poll tax or a literacy test. The statute is facially race neutral. It is intentionally designed to discriminate against African Americans. The trial court found that. And it does have that effect in spades based on a host of, of uh, mathematical metrics. Okay, but so on the can, face of the statute, it doesn't say race. Doesn't, yeah, you can see that on the face, it's race neutral. On its face, it is race neutral. That's why we're applying Arlington Heights. And, and under Article 6 uh, of the Constitution, what class of voters uh, are disenfranchised? The, the specific uh, intentional racial discrimination here was disenfranchising 
the class of voters, people who have felony convictions but are not incarcerated. They are living in the community. Right. That was the racist design going back to 1877. Under Article 6, Section 2, what class of voters are prohibited from voting? Article 6, Section 2 speaks to people with felony convictions except those whose rights are restored. And uh, what class of voters does Article thir 13, Section 1 apply to? applies to all voters. So, I'm sorry, counsel, perhaps I'm not clear. Under the statute, section 13-1, oh, um, what class of voters uh, are, are re-enfranchised? Section 13-1 re-enfranchises people upon the completion of probation or parole. And again, what the trial court found is that the in that that was designed intentionally to discriminate against African Americans living in the community. Thank you, counsel. Sure. Um, if I could get to the point about disparate impact, because this argument that the defendants are making that this law has no disparate impact on African Americans is the same argument that their expert presented in the trial court. The argument is that um, this law equally disenfranchises African Americans and white people who uh, have felony convictions uh, and, and haven't had their rights restored. Uh, again, that rationale would justify a poll tax or a literacy test because a poll tax disenfranchises 100% of black people and 100% of white people who can't pay the literacy test. By this reasoning, that would be no disparate impact on any race. A literacy test disenfranchises 100% of white people and black people who can't pass the literacy test. Again, under this reasoning, no disparate racial impact. The, the trial is court- is that for people who have the right to vote? It, it, people have an independent right under the Equal Protection Clause in the state not to be victims of intentional racial discrimination by the legislature. But, but the poll tax that you, you are referring to uh, impacts a fundamental right to vote, which individuals have not had forfeited. Is that right? Sure. So I so I guess um, people the 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 rationale would justify a rights restoration statute that says people can have their rights restored when they pay a poll tax. Or well, they can I, I understand that you want to deal in hypotheticals, right? But but under um, Article Six, Section Two, that's a specific class of individuals, without regard to race, who who have no right to vote under the Constitution. Sure. Uh, uh, happy to deal in the real world rather than hypotheticals. The trial court correctly found that this law was enacted with the intent and effect of discriminating against African Americans. It is having that effect by extremely wide margins across the state today. The trial court properly invalidated the discriminatory aspect of the law. Uh, the court should affirm. And unless there are further questions, I will cede the rest of my time to Mr. Atkinson. Thank you, counsel. Good morning, Your Honors. My name is Darrell Atkinson, attorney with Forward Justice, counsel for the appellees. In the state of North Carolina, if you're convicted of a felony, you cannot vote if you do not pay money. The trial court held this practice unconstitutional. More specifically, the trial court held that 13-1 violates Article 1, Section 11, and Article 1, Section 19 of the Constitution because requiring that all fees, fines, and costs be paid to obtain an unconditional discharge. It makes the voting rights of people convicted of felonies dependent on their own property and imposes unequal terms on such persons getting their voting rights back. I'll begin with my property qualifications argument, Your Honor. 13-1 conditions the right to vote on financial payments, thereby violating Article 1, Section 11 of the ban on property qualifications because it makes political rights and privileges dependent on the ownership of property. 13-1 by operation encompasses and incorporates all of the laws around community supervision. As a condition of community supervision, people convicted of felonies must pay the cost of appointed counsel, court costs, fines, any supervision fees and restitution. They must pay these costs. Failure to pay results in a multi-year extension of their disenfranchisement or their denial of the right to vote upwards to eight years, 
and under the challenge statute here, it results in that denial to vote upwards to eight years. The panel accepted the findings and conclusions of plaintiff's expert, Dr. Frank Baumgartner, who analyzed all of the legal financial obligations, the fees, fines, and costs owed by people on probation and post-release supervision. And he found that the median amount owed for someone on probation was $2,441. The median amount owed for someone on post-release supervision was $521. The panel was correct when it held that the requirement 13-1's requirement of an unconditional discharge that mandates that fees, fines, and costs have to be paid to obtain that unconditional discharge makes the voting rights of people convicted of felony dependent on the amount of property that they owe in fees, fines, costs, and restitution. Counsel? counsel? Yes, sir. Uh, doesn't your argument to some extent beg the question? It se you seem to be saying that um, the, the problem with 13-1 is that it makes the right of felons to vote contingent on uh, their payment of fees, restitution, etc. But, but you're assuming the, the right to vote that to some extent is in dispute. Um, am I missing something? If I understand you correctly, Your Honor, I think it really leads to this issue where I have to do a really good job of laying out there are two legal doctrines at play here. You have the ban on property qualifications. There are no tiers of scrutiny. There's no burden shifting. Then you have the equal protection clause with the analysis around the various tiers of scrutiny and what is the government's burden that they have to meet to satisfy those tiers of scrutiny. Under the ban of property qualifications, that is inapplicable. The ban is simple. It states if political rights and privileges, they are not dependent or modified by property, no property qualification shall affect the right to vote. It's plain in the plain text, Your Honor. And here, 13-1 implicates the property in the fees, fines, and costs that have to be paid. And it also implicates the qualifications for people under 13-1 to get their voting rights back. So this issue, property and qualification is indisputably impacting the ability of people convicted of felonies to get their voting rights back, which makes their voting rights dependent on them owning a certain amount of property. I, I guess the sort of the theoretical problem I see with that is uh, you could read Article 6 to say felons don't have a right to vote until their uh, rights of citizenship have been restored in the manner prescribed by law. So at the point where they have yet to pay, um, they don't have a voting right under, that's one way to look at it. What, what's wrong about, what's wrong with thinking about it that way? I guess what I would offer, once again, as kind of an equal protection, otherwise qualified voters, Harper was, was decided under equal protection analysis. There's no federal corollary to our ban on property qualifications. The other thing that I would say, Your Honor, it, if you take that legal reasoning to its conclusion, that means that the General Assembly could enact a law that literally said that people convicted of felonies have to, owe, have to own five acres of land before they could get their voting rights restored, and that wouldn't offend the ban on property qualifications. Basically, what's undergirding opposing counsel's arguments is that People convicted of felonies, there's no, you can do any manner of things to them to discriminate against them, and it wouldn't violate the Constitution, Your Honor. That can't be the way. Folks must still have some constitutional protections under the North Carolina Constitution, even if their voting rights haven't been restored. Could the state constitution uh, ban felons for their lifetime from voting? Sure. That, that they could, but they didn't. And the property qualification clause, uh, can you relate the history of the 1776 Constitution, uh, the provisions with that, and the 1835 Constitutional Convention that uh, applied some amendments with why this would appear in the 1868 Constitution? I'm not exactly aware of that history and jurisprudence, Your Honor. What I understand, the ban on property qualifications came into existence in 1868. And it was part of a reconstruction 
constitutional convention, convention which ended slavery, which, which ended the ban on property qualifications, and, and, uh, and, and, and what was, what were the property qualifications that it sought to eliminate? In, in Wilson v. Board of Aldermen, a case that was looking at whether the city of Charlotte could impose taxes on its people. And the issue was, could you tax tangible and intangible property? The court found that it could. But during that inquiry, Your Honor, the court did an analysis of what property means under the Constitution. And during that analysis, they referenced Article I, Section 11, and they held that property means wealth under the exclusive dominion of man and woman, Your Honor. And so that's a broad interpretation of what property means. It could mean five acres of land. It could mean five cords of wood. It could mean five dollars, Your Honor, because all of those things would be in the common public understanding of the time wealth and could be used as a, as a qualification to prevent people from voting. But what had happened under the 1776 Constitution is that there were qualifications for office holding, um, uh, for governor, for senate, for uh, people in, in the, the House. There were also some qualifications with regard to folks being able to vote on those. Uh, while that was modified in the 1835 Constitutional Convention, uh, there still were property qualifications for office holding and voting. Uh, why should we not interpret this uh, Article I, Section 11 property qualification provision consistent with the uh, wrong it was seeking to remedy? I think you can interpret it with the wrong that it was seeking to remedy, Your Honor. This court, the Supreme Court of North Carolina and Wilson v. Board of Aldermen, analyzed what does property mean. And during that analysis, they referenced Article I, Section 11, the ban on property for qualifications. And they interpreted property to mean more than just real, real estate and more than just real property. It's anything of wealth under that exclusive dominion of man and woman. Would you concede that we should interpret the phrase property qualifications uh, consistent with the property qualifications that had previously been required with regard to vote, voting or office holding? Prior to Wilson v. Board of Aldermen? Because that's the, a Supreme The Constitution Court. says what the Constitution says. Okay, let's go to the text, Your Honor. Article one of the North Carolina ban on property qualification provides that as political rights and privileges are not depended upon or modified by property, no property qualification shall affect the right to vote or hold office. And so the framers had the opportunity to put real property. They had the opportunity to clearly define what type of property that they were talking about. But what they, in the plain text, Your Honor, it says any property qualification. Not necessarily that it had to be real property or a certain type of property. Once again, it's wealth. And this court analyzed this in one of uh, its seminal cases on this issue in Wilson v. Board of Aldermen, what property means under that particular clause, Your Honor. You're, so we don't have to go looking, back to you're 1835. At, you're looking at one word, property, not property qualifications. So let's talk about again, the qualifications part. The term property qualifications had real meaning in 1776 and 1835 and 1868. Why should we not use that plain meaning to understand what it means uh, in this provision? I just don't think we're confined to that, Your Honor. And the court, following its own precedence from the Supreme Court, is not confined to that meaning, Your Honor. It's, it has interpreted what property means. And when we're looking at the framers and what they were really attempting to do, Your Honor, they deemed the ban on property qualifications as essential to a more democratic form of government, right, where certain classes of people would not be excluded from the franchise because of their socioeconomic status. That status doesn't just depend on owning land. That socioeconomic status could be wealth in general where you aren't excluded from the body politic, Your Honor. So in looking at the whole of it, the constitutional provision at issue, 
the re-enfranchising statute at issue, what you're saying about the requirement that all fines, costs, and fees be paid, how should this court look at the whole of it then in terms of looking at how the impact is upon the plaintiffs and those whom the plaintiffs represent more broadly in terms of how we should interpret all of this? Sure, Your Honors. Uh, as I said, the property, 13-1, demands and implicates the property that's at issue here, which are all fees, fines, and costs have to be paid. 13-1 clearly sets the qualifications and the terms for people who've been convicted of felonies to restore their voting rights. Those property qualifications, they are, the property is, they are dependent on people convicted of felonies owning a certain amount of property and their fees, fines, and costs. But I think what undergirds your question, Your Honor, could the framers have ever envisioned this scheme that we have here in North Carolina? Maybe not, but they didn't have to. The original public meaning of property qualifications is what controls, and Cato, in their, Amiki Cato, in their brief, really highlighted that they didn't have to conceive of this scheme in of itself. Because like at one time, I'm sure people didn't consider direct deposits to be money. But there would be no dispute that that's money in the present day. What they envisioned, they envisioned that wealth would not be an exclusionary factor to being able to be a participant in the body politic. And that's happening now, Your Honors, with 13-1. If I could quickly touch on a couple of the defendant's arguments that I just want to make sure uh, you all understand fail. One of the arguments they make is that the property qualifications ban couldn't have been existence at the same time as the poll tax because these two are in tension. As a result, property must have, the, the definition of property that was held in Wilson v. Alderman must have been altered or modified. If we accept that legal reasoning, Your Honor, the same thing would apply to the Equal Protection Clause because the Equal Protection Clause was in existence at the same time as the ban on property qualifications. In fact, uh, I mean, same time as the poll tax. And the poll tax came after it, Your Honors. So that would mean, if we take that legal reasoning to its conclusion, that equal protection would be modified or altered because it was in existence at the same time as the poll tax, which clearly was in violation of equal protection, Your Honors. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honors. Um, I just have a few points. First, opposing counsel. Counsel, I, I want to let you get to your yep, point, so absolutely. I just have a quick question absolutely. for you. So <clears throat> if this court concludes that under our state constitutional doctrine, going all the way back to Baird versus Singleton, that if this court determines that an act of the legislature is unconstitutional, our only remedy is to declare that act a nullity, to strike it down and let the legislature determine whether or not attempt to reenact it again. If that's our conclusion, is there a redressability problem with the plaintiff's claims in this case? Well, I don't think it's redressability because, uh, at least under the equal protection claims, because then the, the injury is being treated unequally. And then in that circumstance, they would be being treated equally because nobody would have uh, the right to vote. But, um, but yes, I agree that would be the proper way to look at the remedy. Well, along those same lines, what's your response to the argument that um, if, if all that our court can do to protect the voting rights of the citizens of the state when we find that a statute enacted by the General Assembly was motivated by racial discrimination, if all we can do is identify the portions of the statute that, that should be struck down, here we can take out the, the that we could order that the word unconditional and that the um, uh, suspend under a suspended sentence, oh, I'm sorry, probation or proli. What's your response to their argument that there, there is a redlining that could be done that would In that circumstance, probationers would never have the right to vote because they would not be discharged. It would only account for people getting out of prison. You've struck probation and you've said people that are discharged. Probationers would never vote if that were the remedy. Um, and now the other side has said that we're asking for a special license to discriminate. That is absolutely false. If we had enacted a law saying that only white felons could be reenfranchised, that should immediately be enjoined and invalidated as unconstitution, unconstitutional. We're not asking for a special license to discriminate. We're asking that the law that is being challenged 
be the law that is being reviewed. And the law that's being reviewed here is the law re-enfranchising felons automatically and immediately. Again, a crowning achievement of the civil rights movement of this state. It was so, not the product of racial discrimination. Can I just ask you, you, you said that in your opening, that this was a crowning achievement, but the, co the, the findings of fact from the trial court explicitly said that the evidence in this case refuted that contention. Uh, it did not. I mean, uh, we've got uh, the findings of fact, again, were couched in Section 13-1's denial of the franchise. There is no denial of the franchise, and plus it's based on a legal error of misinterpreting the original 1971 bill, which on its face required full completion of sentence. Um, and I'd like to touch quickly on the property qualifications clause. Uh, Chief Justice Newby, you asked about history. Uh, the Roberts versus Cannon case at the other site has cited is very informative. In that case, from the 1830s, the court said there was a distinction between elections for Senate and elections for the House. Elections for the Senate, people were required to be freeholders. That was a property qualification. Elections for the House, there was no property qualifications, but they had to be current on their taxes. So that shows that under, historically, a property qualification was understood to be the ownership of an asset, not the payment of an amount. So even if, uh, we believe Justice Allen is right that it's not even implicated because they don't Council, have the right to vote. I believe your time Thank you. Fire. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone. Mr. Clark.